0: You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. How many of you had a mixtape like that back in the day? Yeah. I remember making a mix CD for my wife when we were dating. Yeah, anyways. Good morning. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to be with you in this context, especially as we continue with our series, uh, Vintage Songs, Modern Message, in which we've selected eight psalms that we'll be working through. You see, we're intentionally looking at them. Last week, Pastor Travis beautifully taught on Psalm chapter one. So if you happen to miss that, I want to encourage you to go back online and, and listen Now, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up now to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3. Before we dive into our text, I think it's beneficial for us to be aware of the fact that that one of the purposes of the book of Psalms in Scripture is that for 2,500 years, it's been teaching God's people the language of prayer, the language of lament, the language of confession, the language of praise. Essentially, what we see in this book are the words we are to pray, See, Psalms, God's giving us this language of prayer, and, and the Psalms teach us the language of prayer. As it does, it, it shows us the importance of our emotions in our prayer life. And so this morning, as we look at Psalm 3, we're going to explore what it means to pray through our fears and our anxieties. Not to stuff our emotions and to deny them because that will destroy us, but also not to give our emotions full vent and to give them control because that will also destroy us. But rather, what does it look like to pray Through them in the presence of God as we process our fears and anxieties before Him. Now, Psalm chapter 3, we find ourselves right in the midst of a terrifying moment in the life of David, and we have front row seats as He processes through His fears and anxieties. So let's take a look. Psalm chapter 3, verse 1. Are you there? I gave you a lot of time. Good. All right. A psalm of David when He fled from Absalom His son. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. This word right here, we don't have much time to, to kind of explain, but essentially it's a, it's a term in relation to, to, to the music, whether you would pause or continue just to kind of reflect on the words that were just sung. Um, if you follow our blog online, I'll take some time this week and put, use this as my post so that we can kind of understand that word a little bit more. But for today... It's pausing and reflecting on what is said. Verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Now, my goal this morning is to help make sense of this text, both practically and relationally, especially in regards to the language of prayer and the hope that you and I can have even in the midst of our fear and consequently some of the worst moments in our life. Before we dive into this text, would you join me in prayer? God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift that you've given us in the church, for us to be able to gather, to worship you. Lord, I pray through this time that we sang and through this time that we we hear your word, Lord, that you would be glorified. God, I pray that you would soften hearts to a greater understanding of the gospel, that you would stir our affections to love Jesus more. God, as, as I read through this text, I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me. I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. For you are my shield, you are my glory, and the lifter of my head. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever felt like your life was falling apart? I'm not just talking about a bad day. Like, we all have those. But a moment in which you're so full of fear, anxious, stressed out by a situation, maybe a relationship or a circumstance where you were emotionally frozen. You didn't know what to do, overwhelmed by the weight of the situation and your current reality. What did you do in that moment? Who did you turn to? What did you turn to? How did you find rest? How do you pray when you're in the midst of a dark night of the soul, when you're struggling with the very real emotion of fear and the circumstances that precede it and follow it? I mean, let's just be real praying can be awkward. Praying is is weird and uncomfortable. And this is true for me, especially as a kid growing up in church. The examples of prayer that I had in my church and in my home were so one-dimensional. Lacking of emotion. And as an emotional, angsty young person, I struggled with this. It completely turned me off. It's almost like as soon as it was time to pray... Everything going on in life, every emotion was turned off to the point that that prayers were were void of of personality, of feelings, of the truth of God's Word, as well as the truth of what was currently happening in life. And here's what I mean. In in our weird Western view of a very much Middle Eastern religious tradition, we have made our prayer and our responses in worship into a mono-emotional event. See, we like to wrap things up in a nice package with a pretty bow, and make sure that it resolves. This is, this is, as a result, there's very little tension. There's absolutely no angst. And the truth is, there's a watertight doctrinal argument for everything under the heavens. And well, that should satisfy us, right? Or should it? Because I see something different in our text this morning. So let's look back at Psalm chapter three. As you heard Pastor Stephen discussed. This, earlier this morning, the Psalm chapter three makes up of one of the largest sections of Psalms in the book, the Psalms of Lament. And the Psalms of Lament help us answer these questions like: where do I go with my pain? How do I express my sorrow? What do I do when I feel disoriented, homeless, or and alone? Or in King David's case here, what do I do when my son has kicked me out of my own house? So in Psalm chapter 3, verse 1, we see A superscription or a heading says, "A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son." Now, this is not something that was added in by editors later on, but this superscription, um, this heading, was is actually a part of the original Hebrew text. So, in the Hebrew Bible, essentially, this is verse one, and it points us to a historical moment in the life of King David. So. This whole story that it's pointing us to is found in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 17. And this event took place near the end of David's career. David's son, Absalom, essentially formed a a resistance army and staged a successful coup against his father. And Absalom, well, well, he was handsome. He was strong. He was charismatic and shrewd. And a ton of people turned against David and followed Absalom's rebellion. So David had no choice later but to... To flee for his life. David fled from his own house. And we see in the 2 Samuel text that he fled barefoot with his head just lowered and he was weeping. And so he fled from his own city, a city that he established as the capital. And he ran into the hills with a few hundred people. And we're told in the text there was an army of thousands of soldiers chasing after him. Can you imagine his fear as he's running for his life? Can you imagine the heartbreak as he wept because his own son wanted him dead? Can you imagine the unknown that he was experiencing? I mean, let's just be honest. That's a bad day, right? It puts into perspective my own family drama, as it should. It it can always get worse. You could be running through the wilderness from your son with thousands of soldiers chasing after you. But David was full of angst, he was full of anger and doubt and anxiety, and I imagine a desire for revenge while he's still very much mixed up with the emotions that he still loved his son. And God inspired him to pray through these emotions. And so it seems to me that there's space for some tension. There's some space for some raw humanity in our worship. Maybe there's a space for struggle in our prayer. So David, again, inspired by God, prays through his fears by first identifying the source of his fears. And so in this model of prayer, the first thing David does is he brings those fears that he's identified before God. Look at verse one. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul there is no salvation for him in God. And some of your translations may say, God will not deliver him. David's troubles were real. They were growing and they were insurmountable. And he responded to them by praying to the Lord and telling God what his enemies were doing and also what his enemies were saying. And the heart of his complaint is found in the word many in which he uses three times in our text. Look back at it. How, oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, God will not deliver him. It was enough for David that his son was now his declared enemy. But now David's people have also turned against him. And these were the folks that David knew, that David loved, that David trusted and cared for. And these same people were now not only determined to end his reign as king, but they were determined to end his life. David's fear was also two-sided. Not only was it of a physical fear, a very real physical threat in which he faced, but there's a whole other layer here. And that layer is found in the lies that Absalom and his army were spreading about David. See, David's heart was broken by what his enemies were doing. But that broken heart was being stepped on by what his son and his enemies were now saying about him. Look back at verse 2. You guys doing okay? Yeah? All right, verse two says, many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. God will not deliver him. Now, understand that these folks are not saying that they don't believe in God because they do. And they're also not saying that they don't think God can deliver his people because they do believe that. What they're saying is, hey, you, David, God is not going to deliver you. God is through with you. There's no more favor for you. There's no salvation left for you. God will not save you. Now, this is a very different kind of attack, isn't it? This isn't a physical attack on David's life, but this is an attack on David's identity, his sense of self, his sense of worth and significance and status. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for you. This reference to David's soul indicates this as a personal attack. And the words for him in verse 2 indicate that God, who is more than able to help, God who is more than able to rescue and deliver, was not willing to do so for David. See, David's circumstances led onlookers to conclude that God had turned his back on David. And if you know David's story, this was a, a, a pretty logical conclusion You see, there was a key moment in the life of David when his heart turned away from God and turned towards selfish gain. This takes the form of him seeing a woman that he desires, Bathsheba, and he forces himself on her, he gets her pregnant, and he conspires to kill her husband, in which he does so successfully. David, he does eventually confess his sin, and he repents, and God forgives him, but David still faced the consequences of this sin. And it was from that moment in David's story when his whole life fell apart. His family falls apart, his kingdom falls apart, his whole life falls apart. And we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, the Lord says, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. See this ominous promise came true, came to pass through Absalom's rebellion against David, and it caused it caused people to conclude the Lord was done with David. There was no more favor for him. He was God's chosen king, but not anymore. Look at him now. This once exalted king is now running through the wilderness barefoot from thousands of soldiers who want him dead. What's being threatened here is not only his life, that's true and that's happening, but it's his identity. Who is David now if he's not a successful king? Who is David now if he's not a successful father? He's neither of those. However, verse two isn't simply a statement about David, but this is is a statement about God and it's a lie. And what makes this lie so powerful is that it's personal David, there is no salvation for you and God. There might be salvation and grace and hope and mercy for other people, but not you, David. You are beyond hope. Can you relate to this feeling? I think most of us can because one of the lies in which Satan tells uh, to the people of God is all of these things in the Bible, they're true for other people, but not for you. Did God really say, These things are true for other people, but they're not true for you because you're the exception to the rule. I think a lot of us can relate to this feeling because, I mean, that's one of the first places we go. Some of us have heard these lies before, maybe in our own mind or even told from other people. I know I have, and if that's true for you, man, I'm sorry. But listen to me. We need to see this for what it is. It's a lie about God disguised as a lie about you. And if Satan can get you to believe the lie that God's promises are true for everybody else, but they're not true for you, you know what he's gotten you into? Disbelief. Unbelief. So what do we do? How do we defeat these lies? How do we combat these thoughts of unbelief? How do we pray through this fear and anxiety? Look back at verse 3. David here... This is the answer. He begins to preach the gospel to himself. And he does so by first reminding himself the truth about who God is, which is exactly what we do here every Sunday. When we begin our gathering, we begin with the call to worship in which we proclaim the truths about God from his word. And then we sing a song in which we sing the truths about God from his word. Why do we do this? Why is this important? We do this because we need to be reminded of what's true. We have gospel amnesia, and we constantly need to preach the gospel to ourselves, and it begins with the truth about who God is. So David, he moves his attention off of his circumstances, and he puts them back onto God and God's character. In verse 3, he says, But you, O Lord, here is what is true about you, God. You are a shield about me. Stop and think about this for a second. What does a shield do? Now, it's been a long time since I've used the shield, probably never unless it was in like a Nerf dart war, but I haven't really used a shield. But when I think about a shield, I think about uh, protection. Now, if part of your preparation for the day involves you strapping on a shield, what is your assumption about how your day is gonna go? Is, it, is your assumption, I guess I better put on this shield just in case something bad happens. No, that's not why you put on a shield. You put on a shield because you know something bad is going to happen. You're sure of it. You know that something bad is going to go down. You see, what a shield does is it protects the most vital parts of who you are from being completely obliterated when the attack comes. So I think it's fair to say that David here, he does trust that things could get better. However, it's likely to get worse. After all, there are thousands of soldiers chasing him. And so he recognizes this reality that things can get worse. But in the same breath, he says, God, you are my shield. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means that God may not prevent bad things from happening to you. But he'll be right there with you, protecting the most vital parts of who you are during the attack. Let's just be honest. How many times have you, whether you experienced a hardship, a season of confusion, or even a tragedy, one of the basic assumptions we go to is we think, my life is falling apart right now, therefore God, you must not be real. Or my life is falling apart right now, therefore God must no longer be present with me, God must have abandoned me. Now here's the problem with this mindset. The root of that thought is that unbelief that we talked about earlier. The root of that thought is the belief that God's role in your life is to prevent bad things from happening to you. The promises that God has made, you think they're not true for you, but they must be true for everybody else. Listen to me God's job is not to ensure that you're always happy and content in this life. That is not the God of the Bible. And if that's the God you worship, do not connect it to Scripture, because that God does not exist. This is not the promises that God has made. Rather, God has promised in this life, in this broken, sinful world, when horrible things happen, God promises that he'll be right there with you. And David in this text is saying, look, at this moment, this shield is all around me. In this midst of this horrible circumstance that I'm experiencing, I've never felt closer to God than I do right now. Friends, is it possible? Just humor me. Is it possible that whatever hardships you might be experiencing in life Those are precisely the tools that God wants to use to mold the character, the hearts, and the minds of the people God loves. So God, he's a shield protecting the most vital parts of who you are. David says, I could die, but God, you're still my shield. Now the question is begging to be asked, what are the most vital parts of who I am? Well, he continues. He says, you, O Lord, are my glory. Now, Stop and think for a moment. What in the world does this mean? Because glory is a word that can be confusing. It's a churchy type word. What does it mean when David says, you, O Lord, are my glory? Now, this word used here for glory is in the the Hebrew word is kavod. Everyone say kavod. Is that right, Pastor Travis? That's right, kavod. Now you can say it, kavod. (laughs) The word here means that when we gather together to glorify God, we're saying to God, God, you are the most substantial, amazing, awesome one there is to know. You're the most important one there is to know. However, this word can be used in reference to humans as well. We all have kavod, but when it speaks in reference to us, it means, uh, you, it means dignity, significance, honor. Now, if you think about David's life and where he's at at this point, the reality is David's has no more kavod. He's lost it all. He's lost all dignity, all honor. He has failed as a father. He's failed as a king. His family is completely falling apart. He's lost every ounce of moral integrity here. And it's all because he misplaced his kavod. He misplaced his glory. Rather than finding his dignity and significance and worth in who God is, he began to find it in being king, He began to find it in his power and health and wealth. So, David is at the lowest point and he has nothing left but to say, God, I've reached the end of myself. You are the only thing I have. You are my kavod. You are the one in which I find my significance. You are the one in which I find my worth and my dignity. He's essentially saying, My self-worth is not found in who I am any longer or the things of this world, but my self-worth is found in who you are, God. Literally, David is saying, I am somebody not because I am king, not because I have health and wealth, but I am somebody because I belong to the king of kings, the true king of heaven and earth. The Lord is my glory. And finally, he says in verse 3, you are my shield, you are my glory. And then he says, you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. David has no reason to hold his head up anymore. We've established that. He took what God gave him and he ruined it. He made horrible decisions and now this was his reality. His head was hanging really low. So David removes the focus off of himself and back onto God, and he essentially says, but you, God, are the lifter of my head. You are the one who gives me honor. You are the one who, even in the worst moments of my life, when everything around me points to the truth that I'm a broken sinner and an utter failure, you are the reason I can hold my head up high, because you lift up my head. You restore to me my dignity. Now, David, how can he be so confident about this? At this point, how can he be so confident? Well, look in verse 4. He says, "I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill." What does this mean? How can David be so confident that God is his shield and glory and lifter of his head? He's running for his life. He's morally compromised as a fa- as a failed father and king. How can he be so sure? Well, he could be so sure because it has nothing to do with him and everything to do with who God is. And where God is answering them from. Look what he says. He says, The Lord has answered me from his holy hill. What in the world does that mean? Holy hill. This is important because all through Psalms you see holy hill, holy mountain, mountain of Zion. And all of those are referring to the same thing. And they speak to the city of Jerusalem. But more specifically, they speak to the temple that's at the highest point in the city of Jerusalem, which was the hot spot of God's presence. Now what happened at the temple? that gives him confidence. Well, that's exactly where in the temple courts, where they would sacrifice the animals. And that's what gave this sinful, selfish, broken man something to look towards the temple and have confidence that God has forgiven him and God has shown him grace. And so what happened there? The animals would die in the courtyards, right? They would sacrifice them. The animals would die in place of and instead of the sinner. The animal would then bear the guilt instead of the wrongdoer. In essence, the death of that substitute covered over the failure and the sin of the one who is praying and looking towards God at the temple. You see, what could possibly give a man like David who squandered everything God had given him and made horrible decisions? What could possibly give him the confidence to say, God is for me. And he says, it's because you're answering me from from your temple. David is looking towards the substitute that's covered over his sin and that's what gave him the confidence that the Lord was for him and forgiven him. Don't you wish that this really old prayer had some relevance to us today? David's praying this prayer looking towards the sacrificial substitute at the temple which gave him this confidence. How much more confident than can you and I be See, we are on the other side of the cross and our conviction is that Jesus was the ultimate substitute. Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection on our behalf covers our sin as Jesus in his death absorbed into himself the consequences of sin that you and I deserve. And in his resurrection, Jesus provides both a covering and a source of life and grace for those who would turn away from their sin and turn towards Jesus as their Lord and Savior. This is good news. This is a point in which we're like, yes, this is good news. Jesus, this other son of David, who lived a perfect life, a life that you and I cannot live and choose not to live, Jesus was executed and resurrected near this holy hill. And friends, this now gives us the ability to pray through our fears and our anxieties as followers of Jesus, but also to go on the same journey that we see here in Psalm chapter 3, which gives David and us The ability to do something amazing. Look at verse five. David can finally get a good night's sleep. He says, I laid down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. Now, anxiety will keep you up at night, right? I know this from personal experience. Sometimes I drink too much coffee that day or ate too much sugar or there's a baby crying. But but more often than not, there's a spiritual root to my sleeplessness. And so what I, have, what I have learned as I lie awake and toss and turn in my bed is to take inventory of my soul, asking, what do I need to turn over to the Lord? I love this song by singer-songwriter Fernando Ortega, which says this, Hear my anxious prayer, the beating of my heart, the pulse and the measure of my unbelief. Speak your words to me before I come apart. Help me believe in what I cannot see. See, David recognized the source of his fear and his anxiety, and he turned it over to the Lord where he rested in the fact that despite these thousands of people that were against him and his son who wanted him dead, he recognized that God has done for him what he cannot do for himself, and so he slept without fear, trusting God to sustain him. Now, David ends this prayer with a request. Look at verse 7. You guys hanging out, hanging in there with me? Doing all right? All right, we're almost there. It says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessings be on your people. In this closing verse of the psalm, David hands over the conflict to the Lord. And these words are harsh. Like you can call this a go get them type of prayer, right? Like, go get them, God. And there's much to be said about these verses, particularly, but for the sake of time, the point is this David doesn't take matters into his own hands, but rather he asks God to fight his battle. And I think he's given us wisdom to do what we can, but when it comes down down to it, he's saying, God, like, this is yours. The truth is, you and I, we will be betrayed. We will be opposed in this life. And David's response to this opposition and betrayal, he gives us an example on how we're to respond. Instead of lashing out, he prays through his anger and leaves whatever lashing out there is in the wise and the just hands of God. So what does David's rescue mean for us today? See, on one hand, we can simply look at this and say, man, let's imitate David's faith and and and, and trust God's promises, and I think that's good. But on another level, there's something more to this text. David's deliverance from Absalom, yes, was physical and real. He was rescued from deadly danger, and he called out to God to save his life, and God literally saves his life. The problem is, we're not always going to be delivered from trouble and danger like David was. God very well may rescue us from physical danger and unideal circumstances when we call out to him, but not always. So how can we be strengthened by this psalm? What does David's rescue mean for us today? Friends, we first have to understand that David was a model of a greater king who was to come. As God's anointed king, David points us forward to Jesus Psalm 3 points us to Jesus. You see, David's rejection by his own family points forward to Jesus' rejection, which reminds me of John chapter 1, verse 11, if you remember from a few weeks back, which says, Jesus came to his own, and his own people didn't even receive him. See, Jesus was also rejected as king. His family thought he was insane. His hometown wouldn't even believe in him. And you see, enemies of David taunted him, saying, there is no salvation for him and God. Which points us to when Jesus was taunted as he was hanging on the cross and his enemies taunted him from Matthew chapter 27, verse 43, which says, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. David's lying down, sleeping, and waking again points forward to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You see, church, the goal here is not to look to David, not to be like David, but the goal is to look to Jesus and be like Jesus. Finally, let's look back at Psalm chapter 3, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. I read this in preparation for this morning. I thought, David, that's a little crazy. It's crazy because David here is praying for these people who are out to get him. David is praying for the ones who have rejected him, who have chased him into the wilderness. He says, your blessing be on those people. And David's love for these people who turned against him anticipates Jesus' love for us. And it anticipates Jesus' love for those who have rejected him. You see, friends, you and I, we are not David in this story, but rather we're the one of thousands who are chasing after him and wanting him dead. And the good news for us is in Romans chapter 5, which says, God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Church, the only hope that rebellious people like you and me have is through this very King Jesus in whom we rejected and betrayed. And this psalm is pointing forward to this greater King and this greater salvation. We must look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And in this psalm, we see the pattern of this life. Jesus' suffering led to glory because God sustained him. God may not save you from shame and death like he saved David, but God will save you through shame and death like he saves Jesus. Romans 6.5 says, For if we've been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Friends, you may be hard-pressed Your family or close friends may turn against you. You might lose your job. Your own children might turn against you and hurt you. But the promises of the gospel is that you will lie down, you will sleep, and you wake up because the Lord will sustain you. Deliverance comes from the Lord. And if you believe this, you will be able to sleep in peace. You will be able to face death with confidence that God will sustain you. Now, as we move into a time of response, I want to encourage you to think through what would it look like for you to take this same journey in Psalm chapter 3? I mean, how many of you sitting here today have clear, identifiable sources of anxiety and fear in your life right now? Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a situation or circumstance. What would it look like for you to identify that gray cloud that's hanging over your life? To really dig to the root of what's causing you to be so afraid, And anxious? What would it look like for you to turn away from it and turn towards God's character and ultimately find peace? And the reality is, for some of us in here, we need to do some soul searching. It might be that some of us have misplaced our glory. Our kavod is towards other things rather than God. What are you attempting to find your status and significance in? What relationship, career, schooling, finances, or other hundreds of superficial things, what are you looking towards to find meaning and validations? Friends, there will come a day when what you've built your life on, if it's not Jesus, it will disappoint you. It will come to an end. And let's see this morning as an opportunity to replace your glory back on Jesus, perhaps even for the very first time, and to see that in the midst of trouble, even if God doesn't save you, he will be your shield and protect the most vital parts of who you are. He will be your glory and he will be the lifter of your head.